Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with Tina Raymond. Tina is an LA-based jazz drummer, band leader, composer, and educator, and she was one of my first interviews back when I first joined Matt as co-host in 2015. But a whole lot has happened for her since then, so I wanted to reconnect and talk about it all. In 2020, she became the head of the jazz department at Cal State Northridge, and she has a new trio album coming out October 6th called Divinations. We have some new content from some of our guests up on Patreon. We're featuring five transcriptions by Mike Malone, including Steve Gadd on We're In This Love Together by Al Jarreau, Anderson Pack on Leave the Door Open by Silk Sonic, and another recent guest, John J.R. Robinson on Rock With You by Michael Jackson. There's a lot more there, including a video by Bruce Becker discussing 16th note grooves three ways, and another by Brian Zack about jazz ride technique. You can access all this and the rest of our Patreon content for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash working drummer. Tina is just a force to be reckoned with on the LA scene, no matter which hat she's wearing. She's always been a masterful jazz drummer with a unique and confident voice, thanks in no small part to her time at Cal Arts studying with Joe LaBarbera, who we interviewed recently. But her jazz life is just getting bigger and bigger as she grows into the newer roles of educator and band leader. So here we go. Hope you dig. Tina Raymond. of if not the first interview I ever did for this podcast like when I still lived in LA I was getting ready to move to Atlanta and um you know Chris your publicist reached out to us because because you've got this new record going and and you know tons of shit has happened since then but I have been wanting to talk to you again for a long time before Chris reached out to us because I feel like I I was in my infancy as an interviewer and (laughs) I just don't feel like I did you justice uh, <laughs> in one of my. I remember first having home. fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was fun. I think I felt just in, incredibly awkward and had no confidence in you know my skills as an interviewer. I basically had no skills, so <laughs> I'm hoping for a redemptive experience today. What blows my mind is that was like seven years ago, eight it years was eight, ago. Eight, eight, yeah, about eight years ago. Like that is what's crazy to me. Like, where did that tie? <laughs> that that feel like we did that yesterday? You know. I know. I know. Yeah. It's wild. Um, but yeah, I mean, tons of shit has happened for you in that time, um, and I definitely want to get to um, 
you know the the new record that's about to drop and and this this group you've got going but um i i want to start by talking about your position at uh cal state northridge and running the jazz program there because when we talked um i believe you were like you were teaching adjunct you were part of the adjunct faculty at what was it somewhere in pasadena los angeles city college in Hollywood. oh right okay yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and so you, you have since become the head of the jazz department at Cal State Northridge, um, which for those who don't know is, uh, a, a formidable program on the West coast. Um, so just talk a little bit about how you came into that position and how it has treated you so far. Sure. Um, yeah. So after we talked, I ended up getting a full-time position at Los Angeles City College. was there full-time for four years, um, got tenured. And in my fourth year, um, the position at Northridge opened up and I wasn't going to apply. And then I just thought, what do I have to lose? Why take myself out of the race? Let me let them take me out of the interview process. So I threw my name in the hat didn't think anything of it, ended up getting a, a Zoom interview, which was like one of the first times I had done an, an online, you know, video interview. This was pre-COVID. Um, and then did an in-person interview and then accepted the gig. They offered it to me before Christmas and I accepted it on my birthday, January 7th, 2020, when I was in New Orleans for the Gen Convention. So wow, I was- how cool. I, yeah, I was like, cool, this is a great way to kind of ring in 2020. It's going to be a great year, new job, <laughs> new me. And, and, uh, then, and then we all know what happened there. And so then I exited my old job without really getting to say goodbye and started a new job totally online. The first year, 2020, 2021, was totally online. So I taught uh, online jazz school to students I'd never met. Wow. Um, which was so bizarre. And I, you know, I mean, I think I was going to have imposter syndrome the first couple of years of this job regardless. And then to throw that on top of it, um, yeah. was just like so hard, but we're, we're through the worst of it for sure. Um, and last year was the first year it really finally felt like what I signed up to do. And man, what a, what a joyful group of people. Those students are so awesome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the faculty is so awesome. I'm so spoiled to work with Gary Fukushima and Mike Mall and Shai Golan and Ido Meshulam and, um, Jamie Rose, like all these people are just homies, you know? And it's like, Oh, yeah. Hey, Jamie with Jason Harnell. How are you doing, bud? You know, like, it's just <laughs> so <guy>. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in the pandemic, I, you know, um, had, weird amounts of time and was getting very comfortable with my computer. So I decided, Hey, I'll write the master's program curriculum. So I submitted that wow. my first year and that got approved. And, and this is our first year of bringing in a cohort of master's students. So it's just like, amazing. yeah, we're, we're doing lots of cool stuff. We've got, um, especially for a state school, we've got really nice scholarship funding and program funding. It's, I feel like I'm driving, a Rolls Royce. It's, it's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, you mentioned imposter syndrome, like, uh, where, where was that coming from? Like you, you said, you know, the, the fact that you had to start on zoom, just like running an online school was one of the sources of it. But, um, what else contributed to that? And does it still contribute to that? Um, 
the people who have run that program previously are huge figures in the jazz education community. Matt Harris played on the Buddy Rich Band. Gary Pratt is a celebrated educator. Um, and I don't have their careers, but like, how could I? I'm I'm in my 30s, you know? So, right. but the perspective of that for the students and, and then I think for me was just, they were like, what is she doing here? <laughs> mm-hmm. Or if they weren't thinking that, that's what I felt they were thinking. Um, right. And John so, Diversa as well, right? Exactly. He didn't yeah. run the program, but he was full-time over there when they did have two full-time, yeah, jazz faculty. Right. Um, okay. So all these yeah. like big educator figures and, and I just feel like I'm this like scrappy young, you know, weirdo who ended up over there because they knew that they could beat her up and, you know, just make her work, which is true. Like <laughs> I do, I work really hard. Um, but I just felt like my experience in, in the business and in education wasn't enough to warrant me having that title. Mm-hmm. And I think since then I've, I've proven my worth, you know, um, I'm very organized. We do a lot of stuff because I'm able to set things up really far in advance. And, um, the career stuff again, like it, every jazz career is a long road scenario, you know, like, um, a lot of people don't come into their own until they're in their forties in their careers, especially now, like there, there is no buddy rich, big band for me to tour with. Like I, those opportunities weren't for our generation. So it's just really, it's impossible to compare that way too. So, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, in, in previous generations, like you said, you know, if, if somebody had sort of one big thing on their resume, if they toured with buddy for five years or whatever, um, that was, that was enough. And, and you know, it, it should be enough, but now we have to, um, sort of create, um, a resume it's, it's no longer one big thing it's sort of like an aggregate of like okay you know she's been on the scene this long she's done these kinds of projects and that kind of projects and she's uh you know had this other teaching thing it's just like sort of this compilation that equals yeah she's ready to do this right um so what was like <laughs> i can't imagine running a jazz department on zoom. And I don't know if I even want to get into it cause <laughs> it would stress me out. Um, but I, I guess I'm wondering like, how did you implement, um, sort of your, uh, what, what, what was the philosophy or sort of the, the objectives you had, uh, to implement into that program? Um, what were some of the changes in jazz education at the collegiate level that you wanted to, uh, bring into that program? Um, that program was already really communal and, and really friendly in a way that a lot of programs aren't. Um, but in, in general, what I see with pretty much everywhere that isn't CalArts is that there's this inherent competitive aspect of jazz school where you're all competing for the same spots in big bands and you're all competing for the top spot in the top combo. And sometimes students feel like if they're not of the top seven kids that they just get lost. Mm -hmm. Um, And so 
I just really wanted to make sure that everybody felt seen and heard and that even if they weren't necessarily a straight ahead bebop player, that they felt like their strengths were showcased. Mm. Um, and it's impossible to make everybody cause like different kids have different amounts of time to dedicate to the program. Some kids are there all the time. So you see them all the time. So you get to know them really quickly. And some kids, you know, they're working jobs and commuting from Pasadena. So they're only there for their classes and then they got to bounce, which is great. Um, we're happy to provide that too. But I think I have been able to just kind of soften the edges um, of this program that had very few women before. And now we've got a whole bunch of us over there. Um, mm -hmm. Never, never enough. It, man, it would be incredible to be closer to like a 50-50 split, but there's certainly more than when I started. Um, yeah. And just kind of make a more inclusive, holistic, um, inviting um, environment for everybody that doesn't feel like you're in competition with your peers that you can yeah. hear another drummer practicing and be like, Oh, what are they working on? I want to check that out. They sound great. Instead of like, what are they working on? I should be working on that too. You know, like, yeah, yeah. um, and I think we're, I think we're getting there. You know, it, it was so interesting, like the first year placing or even the second year placing students in the various big bands, trying to make, a couple balanced ensembles rather than having the good big band and everybody else, you know, just yeah, trying to have yeah. things more balanced. And some kids were like, why am I in this chair? Do you hate me? And I'm like, absolutely <laughs> not. I think that you're going to get the best experience in this band, in this chair. You're going to play more second trumpet in the second band than you would fourth trumpet in the first band, you know, like that's the solo right. chair, like just be, you know, go with it. And, I think we're, th we're all, I'm sure I'll get that forever, but um, just trying to make things more balanced so that everybody can grow, you know, a right, what is mm -hmm. the saying? A rising tide raises all ships, you know, just trying yeah. to do that for everybody. Yeah. I love the idea of, of um, getting away from the feeling of competition um, because I think um, that, that feeling is, present in a lot of collegiate programs, whether, whether it's encouraged or not, I think people's insecurity sort of leads them into that headspace about like, I'm in competition with the, even if you're friends with these people, it's not malicious. It's not like, fuck you, but there's this, you know, insecurity driven competition. Um, and the idea of a college program where, like you said, everybody's seen, everybody's heard and everybody gets to, um, you know, play to their strengths and explore whatever their journey is. It's not about giving everybody a trophy. It's about sort of uh, make, like providing a, a useful experience for all different types of players instead of making them right. fit into this bebop box. Exactly. And I think that when people feel like they're not in competition, they also feel safe to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, which is part of the learning and growth process, you know, like, I think this is especially true for women in America that were kind of raised to feel like we have to be, have you seen the Barbie movie yet? I have not, but I'm, I'm going to. You've got to see it. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Um, but, and there's a great like monologue that kind of addresses this specifically that, that women in particular, um, culturally are raised to, to be perfect and to not make mistakes which is a fixed mindset, which makes it really difficult to learn. And then you throw some insecurities on top of that. 
And it's just so hard to be willing to make mistakes. Um, and, and it's impossible to grow without being able to fall on your face from time to time. So creating an environment where like, ah, we're all going to make a bunch of mistakes again. I'm making a ton of mistakes as an educator, you know, <laughs> but like, let's move forward and let's see what happens. And thank you for your patience in this process and we'll get through it together. You know, it's just, yeah. it feels like it's easier to learn for everybody if we go into it that way. Yeah. And you, you came out of a program like that, I think at, at Cal arts, um, mm -hmm. and I, in, in our, in our first interview, we talked a little bit about Joe LaBarbera. Um, and I, I interviewed him about two or three months ago. Awesome. Um, and it was just, it was so great to, to talk with him again and just be reminded of the, the program that he created at Cal arts, because I think it, it's like the prototype of what you're talking about. Um, and and the proof of it is the players that have come out of there, whether it's you or Gene Coy or Nate Wood or just all these different, so such different types of players that Joe was able to, uh, like like you were alluding to, provide a useful growth experience for everybody. Yep, absolutely. I think of him and David Reutstein. And actually, now that I'm older and I'm in this position, I do think about Rick Van Mater, who was the head of the program at Cincinnati. I was there and, and what an incredible leader and organizer um, he was, you know, I have a whole new respect, you know, for that side of it as well. And, and trying to put all three of them together in, in what I'm putting forth for this program. Yeah, man, the, uh, the, the titles of leader and organizer, um, just stressed me out. <laughs> but but it, I mean, it, it leads me to the question of like, how has this gig uh, sort of challenged you and, and forced you to grow? Because no matter oh what, <laughs> no matter what theories or philosophies you may have as an educator, you know, they're, they're lofty goals and that's all well and good. But if, you know, if, if you can't do the legwork and, you know, sort of the hands and feet work of, organizing your shit for yourself, making it feel organized to your students, and then, you know, uh, getting them to trust you <laughs> with, uh, your, with your leadership. Like, how has that journey been for you? Um, a, it's a lot. The admin thing, <laughs> especially the first couple of years, I, the phrase I used for it was soul-sucking. Um, <laughs> because it's, it isn't any fun. It's no fun to send a bunch of emails about finances and fill out one form only to be told you filled out the wrong form and you got to do this other thing that's the same information but on one it's it's like working with the california dmv a lot of the time you know what i mean it's just like yeah ah, financial stuff oh my god but, but what i also didn't realize was we were also the program was running like without two people in really important positions, we had no like music office staff or financial um, analyst. So I was like doing this other person's job oh, in addition. To <laughs> so when this woman got hired, who's our financial analyst, oh my God, I love this woman so much. She's one of my favorite humans. Um, it, it, the job got a lot easier, but um, it, my planner, like my, I still use like a written, old school planner and I've expanded it to like these big teacher planners that have tons of, you know, and I just have to write everything down all the time because there's too much stuff for me to, to like, remember, it's just too much. So I have like lists of things to do for school, lists of things to do for a thesis quartet, lists of things to do for my own projects, lists of just like 
personal stuff. Um, right. And I've gotten much better at being okay at the end of the day with not having everything done. I've just had to had to accept that like there's a finite amount of time in the day, and this is what I'm going to get done. And I'm getting better at setting boundaries for stopping work at the end of the day and not answering emails on the weekend and and putting better boundaries around that job and my personal life so that when I am working, I'm fully present and fulfilled enough to do my job well. And when I'm not working, I'm fully present with, you know, the gigs I want to be doing or the music I want to be making or the people I just want to be hanging out with. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, a huge um, lesson to to be learned that I think everybody has to learn for themselves in their own way. Um, and what you were just describing, you know, was in the context of, of your job as a professor. But I think so many people go through this no matter what their job is. Um, but, you know, this idea of, of boundaries and there are so many only so many hours in the day, I can only get so much done. Um is there uh, a lesson to be learned there for musicians? Like, you know, people who don't have a college gig, people who don't work a regular job, people who are just running their own careers. Like how, I guess my question is, how have you applied that to your career just as a musician? Take the college professor hat off. Like how do those lessons about boundaries in work apply to us? Yeah, I think, um, I know that you know musicians who are like this, who like they can't talk about anything but music and they can't talk about um, anything but recordings and like solos on this record. And but it's like, man, just stop talking and go to a museum, you know, like go, (laughs) go to a baseball game, like get out (laughs) and experience life for more than this one dimension so that when you go back to create your art, you've got perspective on what it means to be human. Um, and I think that that is the thing that sometimes when we're just so narrowly focused and driven, which I mean, having great work ethic and having a drive is how we all end up doing this stuff in the first place. Cause as you know, a career in music is very difficult. Um, but in order to make something that people actually want to engage with, like you've got to be in touch with humanity. You've got to understand yeah. <laughs> something other than like a really heady, um, you know, mathematical pattern like you have to have something else to express that makes people feel like ah this is what music is supposed to do it's supposed to make me feel this thing right and i i think you have to be able to express it um not only in your playing but like just in your interaction with people like you have to be able to to fucking talk and a lot of musicians right. can Cannot. on the bandstand. <laughs> like, yeah, they're they're great at talking with each other, like ad nauseum. But when it comes yeah. to like making an audience feel welcome and like it's it's okay that they're there, <laughs> a lot of musicians are not good at that. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of like your role as an educator, or you know, the role of a collegiate jazz program, um, I think. The um, like you were mentioning, you know, uh, some some uh, jazz communities can just feel like this echo chamber where everybody is just talking about only music all the time. And I think mm-hmm. some college programs feed into that. I mean, it's kind of by design. It's like you're there to really focus in intensely on a certain thing, but it leads yeah. to this 
inculcation, this bubble um, where the rest of the world doesn't really penetrate. So in your program, um, are there are there ways that you're encouraging your students to, like you said, <laughs> go see a baseball game, get out of here, get out of the practice room, go be a person? Is that like, yeah. an important we lesson they need to learn? <laughs> We all went bowling at the end of fall semester together. It took everybody out bowling. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, Excellent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, let's just get out of the practice rooms. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, that's hard because I am there to teach them about jazz. And mm-hmm. um, I, the extra stuff that that's brought in, for the most part, is related to jazz. Um but some other things that we've done that kind of are a little adjacent, like, and this is actually not as fun and creative as uh, it should be, but it's important. Like I brought in my, um, my freelance tax accountant, you know, like just having someone come in and teach them about the nuts and bolts of being a freelance artist. Yeah. That's a really important aspect of this job that if you're, if you're just focused on what the music is and where the music comes from and how to play two fives, like you might forget that like, Oh, right. There's a whole like how to how to live, you know, aspect of this. Same thing I had. Right. Do you know Tom Rizzo, a great guitarist who played on the Tonight Show for a long time? He has yeah um, a personal finance degree and a whole investment app. And I had him come in and just talk about personal finance um, as a freelance musician. So trying to get wow. get them prepared to be um, independent artists, you know, financially. I think that that's an important thing that is part of my teaching responsibility and, and, and then also bowling. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I mean, the, the, the finance thing is huge because, um, for, I, I think for all young people these days, not just musicians, like the, the pitfalls are around every corner. And Mm -hmm. if, if you're not a little bit savvy about just how money works and how credit works and how student loans work and how taxes work, um, you how to could, write off all your gear. Yeah, I mean. Right. Like without this yeah. knowledge, you could saddle yourself with debt that is going to actually uh, impinge your career. Like it is going to affect yep. the choices you get to make later in life. Um, Correct. That, that are going to determine how much time and energy you get to devote to what you want to do. <laughs> right. And and if you get to an age, heaven forbid, where like you don't want to have to take every gig anymore. You know, that you mm-hmm. don't, if you don't have a financial, you know, bed underneath you, like, that's one of my biggest fears is waking up 70 and having no savings. You know, it's just yeah, <laughs> yeah um, for sure. Um, and it's not, you know, I'm sure you address this with your students. It's not just about having a a bed or a floor underneath you. It's about keeping your ceiling low. Cause like you could be making shitloads of money, but if you've got shitloads of debt to service for 30 years, it, you know, you're, you're back at zero. Right. I have this conversation with Nick Mancini once in a while about like the role of, of a collegiate jazz program. And we kind of touched on it. Like, um, how how much do you focus on the art of what you're talking about versus the practicality uh and and in terms of like making your playing or your self as a musician you know marketable um and employable is that on your radar or are you more focused on developing people's creativity and their individual voice and etc it is on my radar there is a music entrepreneurship class that i do not teach um another person teaches it. And 
I think that would actually be a class that I would like to teach in the future should that open up, because I do think um, you can look at these things that are seemingly uncreative and have a creative approach to marketing. You know, I mean, that's actually probably one of the more effective paths. I mean, we look at different people's Instagrams, like Walter Smithson, like what a creative way to promote your music by having these stupid memes that you're playing a lot, you know, and like you want to watch it over and over. And then you've just watched Walter Smith's video 10 times and you're laughing and <laughs> then you want to go buy his record. Right. Um, so I think that there are creative ways to approach a lot of this information um, that would be a fun thing to teach with this new master's program. We have um, a seminar in jazz careers, which is going to address a lot of that, at least for the master's students. Um, but um, I have not had much of an opportunity to address that with the undergrads yet. Um, and I honestly, I don't know what's going on in that entrepreneurship class as it stands. Um, mm. It's that this is also something that the longer I'm there, the more I start to see what the curriculum is for each course. But in the meantime, I'm just making sure the students are registering for the right classes and <laughs> directing the big band and making sure my jazz history stuff is on point. Um, I think what the students do get from me, though, is they see what I'm doing with my own career. And it's been fun to watch them um, either take some of the things that I do and roll with it or or go in different directions. Like we've booked a lot of combo concerts at The Mint and at um, this place in Studio City, Kulak's Woodshed. And we're going to be booking at the York this year, too. And once we started booking student groups in there, all of a sudden I would see my students have bands that were then performing at these venues too. So it's like you give them the idea of like, Oh, we could play at these venues and then they go and they do it for themselves. So yeah. that kind of learning process, they, they learn so much just by watching what's going on, you know, what I'm yeah. setting up for them and also what I'm doing with my own stuff. record as a leader or have you done this before no this is my second so last time we talked i was like just in the like the the festering phase of of ideas on what to do for a record and then uh, -huh. uh there was an election that was interesting and um yeah. that inspired me to put together a whole record of protest music from american history and arrange it um, and that record was with Putter Smith on bass and Art Landy on piano. And it's called Left, Right, Left. And it came out 2017. Right. It was like, okay. yeah, I remember yeah. that. Um, and, you know, it took like this Woody Guthrie upbeat tune about women in unions and made it a ballad. It took the Battle Hymn of the Republic and put a 12-tone row underneath it. Just like <laughs> my my interpretation of how cyclical these 
protest topics are in American history. Uh, mm -hmm. We just have not learned. Um, so that came <laughs> out and it, it did it did very well, um, considering it was my first um, record, had some nice press and um, some radio play. It was a great experience. And so this is my second as a leader um, and it's totally different. It's a totally different project. All originals instead of arrangements. Mm -hmm. um, different band. It, it's like almost a rock album at times. It's it, yeah. Different people have been weary of even calling it jazz. Someone called it fusion, and I was ready to punch them in the face. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't even but, know what that word means anymore. Like right. Well, I mean, you know, like we're all like 1970s Mahavishu. This is not that. Thank you. This does not it's, sound like weather report. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a vital Tectones vibe, maybe? No. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> um, so like you, you talked briefly about, you know, there was, there was a, uh, a specific theme to your last trio record. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a specific theme to this one, it seems. Absolutely. Um, I just feel like as a drummer, since we're not playing melody or harmony, um, that sometimes it's hard as a leader to connect um, with a listener. So for me, having really strong thematic material that's kind of uh, where a listener can start from, they can they can catch the vibe um, more so than just, you know, telling them, well, this is my song, Fig, and they have to <laughs> ponder about a fig. While right. you play a drum solo, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. It just makes me feel like I'm communicating the intention of the music if there's a thread through the whole project for me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. Um, it's it's one of the ways that, uh, you know, I think jazz musicians especially can set their listeners up to succeed, right? Like, don't don't be ambiguous. Don't be mysterious. Just like... <laughs> throw them a bone <laughs> yeah and like they can be as abstract with it or as direct with it if, as they want they can pull up so this record is a, uh, all based on tarot cards from different decks and i reference mm. what the decks are and so a listener could if they are a visual person go and collect the cards that these songs are written about and read the booklets with the statements that are in them and like really kind of do a deep dive about what each card was about and then listen to the music and have an experience that way or they can read the couple words that I've given them and think about the imagery that they see in their own mind of what um, an Ace of Pentacles card would look like with those couple thoughts, you know, and they can like create an own um, imaginary deck in their brain that goes along with the music as well. I just feel like it gives, it gives the listener an opportunity to also participate in the creative process. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I like as a listener. Me too. Definitely. Um, so how how long has uh, uh, tarot been part of your life? Not very long. And it's not it's not a huge part of my life. I have a couple decks, but a friend of mine in the pandemic got very into tarot and started like a side hustle business um, uh -huh. doing readings. And whenever we would get together and hang out, she'd do a reading for me. And um, this music was written last summer. I had seen her a few times throughout the year and she was doing these readings and the cards are like, every time I saw her, she'd have a new deck of cards and the cards are like really beautiful. Like the front mm -hmm. image of the record is this card that was made by um, a woman who lives in Alaska who has her own tarot decks. And I like, they're just 
so whimsical and and the readings what i was discovering as my friend was doing these readings for me like it's never actually what the card is saying or what the person is saying that gives you the perspective it's how you take it it's like Mm -hmm. what what your reaction is to what they're saying is what you're gaining from this experience of like here's this thing separate from you how do you feel about it and then you get to the essence of like what you're going through it's um it's like creative therapy in a way (laughs) yeah i i was gonna say like i've i've had one or two readings done over the years and and i i dug it and and i think what people don't understand about it is that like it's not it's not predictive it's not telling your fortune it's just sort of an exercise of like raising some things raising some topics or some issues and and seeing how your um uh, just seeing how they meet you, seeing what it brings right. up in you and, and right. what realizations or, or lessons there are for you. I remember the, the, the one sort of lesson or realization I remember from a, a reading I did was that uh, I like fi- financial security is worth more to me than I thought. Like the lesson I took from right. that reading is like, whatever you got to do to just have some fucking money is going to go a really long way for your mental health. Like if if you've got to bag groceries or do landscaping or what, like having that money, like what, whatever, whatever hit your pride is going to take from doing that work is still going to be way better than the stress and emotional trauma and just hell of not having any fucking money. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, it it is. It's amazing. The stuff that like you kind of narrow in on in those readings. Yeah. And um, last year in particular for me, this this admin job and this, I just felt like such a adult. I felt so old, you know, and, <laughs> and um, these tarot card readings reminded me how much I needed just creativity and whimsy and fun mm-hmm. in my life. Um, that was what I got out of these readings was like, oh, man, I need to be having more fun. And I'm not old. Um so, right. Um, yeah. Not a lot of whimsy was... in the collegiate uh, administrative apparatus. <laughs> no, not so much. Not so much in those IRA reports. <laughs> <laughs> Oy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so as far as um, the instrumentation of this record, uh, like it's, it's another trio record. Um, and I like, Trio is is has always been my favorite format, and guitar trio in particular um, has has just always been my favorite. Um, was that instrumentation sort of was it very intentional on your part, or was it more like I I just love these two guys and I want to do a trio with them, and they happen to play bass and guitar? The latter, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think both of them are so brilliant, um, and they it, you remember the the. Um, geographic quality of Los Angeles. Um, I live in Burbank. Um, Carl lives in Studio City and and Andrew also lives in Burbank. So we were all within like 10 minutes of each other, <laughs> which is incredible in this city. Yeah, that trumps everything in LA. Like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and it wasn't just that they were all, they were both really close to me. Like they're both just so great. And they had, I don't think they had played together much, if at all when we started playing together last summer, they'd come over and we'd start playing. And that was actually one of the first times I had these tarot decks laying around. And I was like, I was like, pick a card, let's improvise on this card. 
And that kind of started the idea of like, I should write some music based off of cards. Um, and Carl's wife had also illustrated a deck of cards. So I took that deck oh, and wow. used it in the process too. Um, but at, man, Andrew is like, I just think such an inventive player. He doesn't really play like anybody else. Mm -hmm. And um, now that he's in LA, it's so funny to hear all these, he's teaching at CSUN as well, all these younger players starting to emulate his style of playing. Mm -hmm. um, and the first couple times I played with him, I, I couldn't quite get it because he has these kind of like fast, unarticulated ideas that happen that you're like, what is happening? And in, and in many ways, it actually reminded me a lot of Putter's playing because hmm. um, Putter has this same kind of like unarticulated phrase um, development that he does that it takes you a couple times to play with them to figure out how to complement it. And once I started to hear it, I was like, Oh my God, this is so gorgeous. Um, so I just love his, and, and Carl is virtuosic on the instrument. He's also a cellist and has all of this, um, ability on a, a big instrument that is, um, so clear and so in tune and, and really inventive. And both of them are kind of just fearless in a way that's really fun to play with as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I regret, uh, never getting to play with Carl because we, we have, we have a lot in common. Like he came you guys to Kansas, in Kansas city. city. Yeah. He, he came to Kansas city after I left and then okay. he came to LA after I left LA. Um, but you know, in you know, in my wake with the, the the people that I left behind in in those two cities, I just hear and see nothing but the 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 most raving reviews about him as a, a player and a person. Yeah, both of them too. They're both like just so like like oh hey what's up, and then they pick up their instrument and then they're just monsters. Oh, that's great. Um, so, what was the composition process for these tunes? Oh, struggling at a piano. Um, mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it was it was great. It was a, a fun process that you know, in the heat of school, is I don't get much time to to play piano and sit and think about melodies and harmony. Um, so for me, it was sitting at the piano. A lot of times for me, bass lines come up first because as drummers, that's that's our connecting, right? Yeah. Um, so it was. It, I would pick a card. Um, I'd check out the visual aspect of it and the words that were associated with it. And then I'd kind of use that as a meditation point at the piano of like, what does great hope sound like? <laughs> um, and then, you know, it, and I know that that sounds so weird, but for me, like putting boundaries around what I was trying to work on, I, I don't compose a lot. Um, I would not consider myself a prolifically, creative composer. Um, so mm -hmm. having these kind of boundaries around what I was trying to work toward helped me get what I think are some really nice, um, compositions out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, to what extent did the guys sort of help develop? Like, did you, did you come to them with sort of like fully formed, fully done tunes or was it more abstract ideas that you then fleshed out together? Both. Um, the melodies for the most part were all there, but there are a couple sections on tunes where I would, I would just have slashes and chords or bass notes. And I would be like, I don't really care what the harmony is through here, but this is the root motion I want and, and figure it out. Like that happens mm -hmm. on 
the ballad and what Andrew comes up with, with this like sustained texture and then the melody that he creates over it is way better than anything I would have written. Um, <laughs> so there was for sure some collaboration that way. Um, and then it, just thinking about them as players and writing stuff that I think would be nice for them. Like I realized after the first five tunes that I'd written that I didn't feature Carl on a single melody, which is like a crime because he's <laughs> such a beautiful player. So I wrote a tune for him. That's got the melody and the bass line. Um, Love that. Which tune is that? Ace of Pentacles. It's the very last cool. one. Yeah. Cool. Um, so as far as just the drums are concerned, um, is there a direction in your drum? Is there like a new direction in your drumming that you got to kind of explore with this record? Um, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. It's so hard to have perspective on your own art yeah, um yeah. because I, I did not i did not set out intending to create a record that doesn't have any swing on it this is just the collection of tunes that came out in this moment um i think that there is an opportunity on this record for me to do a bit more story development in my soloing ideas because mm. a lot of the tunes don't necessarily follow form they're they're cued sections um which gives you a chance, and I'm playing over a lot of these vamps, right? It's not just like an open drum solo, like there's there's some music underneath it, which I mean, I'm sure you've thought this before, but it's like on in the jazz context, like you play behind everybody else's stuff, and then when it's your turn, they all like drop out and go to the bar while you play a It's like, yeah. hey, you know, play with me. Yeah, um, I just played so with that, you for 13 minutes, you fuckers. Yeah, right? <laughs> 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 like I want to make music with people. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of that on the record, which, which allows, I think me to like leave space within the soloing ideas, which then the, the ideas are more like musical phrases, not just drum garbage. Right. Um, right. And I, I love the idea. I, I have always loved playing drum solos with some sort of accompaniment. Um, mm -hmm. And, and we talk, we talk all the time about like leaving space in your playing, right? Yeah. And when when you're playing a solo like all by yourself, um, leaving leaving space in there is so so hard because the space is silence. <laughs> and that and that leaves moments for misinterpretation of time, right? Like the yes. moment you leave space, everyone's idea of where the beat is can sometimes shift. And then everybody comes in wrong at the top of their head and you're like, well, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like in, a, in addition to, you know, people's perception of time or beat in that silence, I think, um, you know, not just musicians playing music, but people in general in life are uncomfortable with silence. Like it's yeah. a hard thing to get comfortable with. And, you know, just uh, being able to play a drum solo on some sort of bed that allows you to put space in your playing without there being this uncomfortable silence, whether it's your discomfort or the audience's, you know? Right. Um, yeah, I was, I was sort of um, surprised uh, listening to this record because I, I've, thought of you um perhaps unfairly but like i i think of you as just a great straight ahead player a lot of the context it's so I've seen interesting because a lot of people uh, who don't know me or haven't 
they think of me as a free jazz drummer. Like that's their mm-hmm. perspective because I'm on this stuff with Bobby Bradford and I'm on this stuff with Eric Grievous and Dan Rosenboom. And if they've checked out Trio Subliminal, which is like flying V guitar, like tenor guitar and, and you know, trumpet, like it's just so interesting people's perspective on your career based on, you know, I mean, we were hanging on a jam session. So yeah, right. like that's what we were doing. Right. And then I like I, I saw you do like, you know, various projects at Blue Whale. And then you did that mm-hmm. uh, that trio record with Nick Mancini and Ty Bailey, which was just which is very straight ahead. Yeah, beautifully yeah. straight ahead. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was great to hear you do this like non swing, non straight ahead record, which, you know, as I'm finding out, like it's not a new thing for you. It's not like, oh, she's going this direction now. <laughs> but I just hadn't experienced you in in that context is often. Um, sure. So like, uh, I, I also, regardless of like, whether it's straight ahead or not, um, I feel like your playing is just sort of a little more aggressive and, and bombastic for sure. on this record, which yeah, is great. I was playing I this it. record for my parents. Um, which if there's any, like my parents are not musicians and so, and, and they don't live in LA, so they never get to hear me play. So, you know, for them, the perspective of what I'm doing is very like, here's this thing, then a year goes by, and then here's this thing. And and my mother's comment, I think she was like, it's amazing how present you are on this. And it's true. Mm. Like, it is. It's a very drum forward record. And I hadn't really yeah. realized that until I listened to, to it from her perspective that way of like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of drums on this. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Like, you're you're getting up in it. Um, and it's, it's, it's cool because the, like, I think the overall texture and the overall feel of the record is sort of, I mean, like there's only three of you, right. And, and it's a guitar trio, not a piano trio. Um, so, uh, you're, you're really, um, you're cutting through it in a great way. (laughs) There's this juxtaposition of sort of like Carl, Carl and, um, sorry, is it Andrew? Yeah. They sound a little bit more delicate and and you're like you are obviously the lead instrument on this record which i love i kept i kept making tally the sound engineer bump the drums just like louder louder (laughs) and and maybe it's like a it was a revolt because a lot of times on jazz records the drums are so far in the back and Mm. they're so compressed it's like why are the drums back in left field when everybody else is like you know right at the pitcher's mount mount and i just i i I wanted to hear it as though the listener was like almost sitting at the drums, you know, mm, that it's yeah. that present because that's how we hear music. And if it's my record, I almost want you to feel like you're sitting hearing it from where I hear the music on stage. Um, yeah. That makes perfect sense. Like now that I'm sort of thinking back on, on listening to this, it's like, yeah, it, it made me feel like I was sitting at the drums. Cool. Love it. Great. Where did you record it? Um, Tally Sherwood Tritone Studios in Glendale. Um, okay. I'm not familiar with it at all. <laughs> Tally's awesome. Tally is such a great engineer. Um, I've done a few things over there. He did the first thesis record. I did a couple records with Darek Oles and this Polish piano player, Kuba Stankiewicz over there. Um, he's just got such a great sensibility for instrumental music it's a great space it's in glendale so it's 15 minutes down the road and he's like a nice person to be around all day you know it's just a good thing and it doesn't it it doesn't sound um 
it sounds extremely natural. It sounds like great instruments in a great room, which I'm sure is exactly what it is, and nothing else. Like, just just the ingredients. Don't fuck with them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were, we were in booths. Like, the drums were in the main room, and then there was a guitar booth, and then there was the bass booth, which I'm, I'm learning more and more is like a very LA way to record, you know, in New York, mm-hmm. it's like room, go. Um, <laughs> but that did, that did give us some opportunities to really kind of hone in on Andrew's different effects and adjust those in a way that I think had we all been in the same room, we would have been limited on how much we could bump things and change things. Cause it would have impacted all the instruments. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, getting like the cymbal decay right, that was a thing that we, we spent a lot of time on because I have this sizzle, right? And, and there would be moments where he would go and he would mute one thing and then I'd hear the cymbal decay unnaturally. I'd be like, we got to fix that. You know, this, mm. isn't, this isn't sounding how I know the cymbal sounds when it decays. So Right, um, right. Yeah, uh, and, yeah it's, it's so interesting how, um, you know, Mics, mics don't hear things the way we hear them, and and mm-hmm. engineers don't hear things the way we hear them. You know, for better or for worse. Um, but there's almost always a conversation <laughs> to be had there. Um, yeah. Like, how have your uh, chops or abilities as far as recording um, uh, developed, especially during COVID? This is something we've talked about a lot. How how COVID forced a lot of drummers to like get up to speed about recording themselves, even if it's just with one mic on zoom, <laughs> you know? Yep. Yep. I mean, I went, I went whole hog. I bought four mics, two overheads, bass snare, um, got pretty I, So I'm going to stop you. I, I love that you refer to four, four mics, mics as whole hog. As whole hog. <laughs> because as so many drummers are like, should mic. I buy this? Should I buy this 11 piece mic pack for my four piece drum set? <laughs> oh God, yeah. Nope. No, that was not me. I mean, yeah. um, I hit up Aaron McClendon, who does a lot of at home recordings. Yeah, like, what should I yeah. get? And took his He's advice. He's a and wizard. God. God, yeah. I haven't heard that guy's name in a while, but I just got intimidated all over again because he's so good and so smart. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, what should I get? And he was like, here are the things you need, bare minimum. I was like, cool, bare minimum, got it. Um, <laughs> and and that was so much of my experience of teaching online was like um, we did a bunch of layered big band recordings. We did a bunch of layered combo recordings original music recordings. I mean, that's what I was doing with my students that whole year online. So got pretty proficient with it. Um, and and then when we went back in person, I, I've more or less put all of those microphones away and have not touched them since, and I feel fine about it. <laughs> um, but, you know, engaging with the, the software and the mics and listening back and hearing how things sound in different rooms and um, the, the mystery and the intimidation factor of recording, I think for a lot of us through that process of having to do it ourselves went away. So I'm much more secure in talking with engineers, even if I don't know exactly what to tell them, tell them what yep. I'm hearing and what I want to hear. Yep. Um, and that the, that's the thing for me that um, has really developed is like, I'm not gonna just trust someone else's ear because they're the professional. Like I trust my own ear and what I want to hear. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a great point for drummers to remember if if they're just wading into this. Like you said, the intimidation factor is huge um, just with the, the tech and the software and everything. But um, it was uh, 
like one of one of my toe hold, uh, one of my footholds or toe holds, whatever, uh, <laughs> as I was wading into this world was like, I've, I've been playing drums my entire goddamn life. I've been listening to music my entire life. I have ears. I know yep. what sounds good. I don't necessarily know how to get that sound, but like, I, you know, I know the drums. I yep. know music. I have ears. So let that be your guiding principle. Don't get lost right. in the, uh, the, the, the screen. <laughs> right. Right. Like use your ears and uh, trust yourself when you think something sounds good. Absolutely. And, and then using, you know, like spatial relationship and talking to it, like this sounds like it's in a different room or it sounds like it's in a smaller room or it sounds too close. You know, that kind of information mm -hmm. I've found that works really well in communicating with an engineer. Like they can take that and figure out what I mean. Um, right. So, yeah, yeah, I'm sure that like having, having that, that, uh, confidence just the ability to talk about stuff like that was uh, a big uh i'm sure it made your record better it made it sound closer to what i wanted it to there's nothing on i remember hearing some recordings from when i was younger and and feeling instinctively like the hi-hat's too loud but not feeling mm. confident enough to sing and there's nothing on this record that i'm like man i wish this sounded a little different everything sounds the way i wanted it to thing we talked about oh, that man. a little bit <laughs> uh, um not not as frequently man i'm i miss that practice and and i go back to it from time to time I, i'm i'm more into these 30 minute in and out workouts right now where it's like i can set aside 30 minutes ha the luxury of having 90 minutes to do a class in person i have not taken advantage of that since pre-pandemic yeah um yeah, all of that has changed. Um, that's another boundary I should work on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, it 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 can't not inform how you play and how you move and um, all that. Are are there any like uh, are there any physical challenges you've had since the last time we've talked? No. Um, my, you know, my posture is always something I'm conscious of, the placement of my feet and hips alignment. That's all something I'm very conscious of and something I teach and something I wish drummers talked more about and taught more. Mm -hmm. um, and, and hand technique, all of that I'm very conscious of. Um, so, you know, so far I've been really lucky to not have any kinds of injuries. Um, no, physically things are, things are cool for now. So yeah. Good, yeah. good. Oh well, I'm I'm sure it's because you uh, just instilled good habits in yourself from a very young age. Trying. I mean, I don't know. This is something I've been thinking about. There's there's so many players that have quote unquote like incredible chops, but are coming from places of quote unquote poor technique, like technically incorrect technique. You know, like their fingers are sticking out, they're holding with the back fingers and. Um, there are times where I feel like my technique is not 
able to get to those kinds of chop things, you know, and I don't know, Mm -hmm. maybe that means I should change my technique. Um, But I don't know. I just feel like for longevity, I know what I'm doing is a healthy approach to playing. So that for me is important. Yeah. Um, I, I interviewed uh, Ash Stone six months ago or so, and, and we were just having this conversation about just the physical aspect of everything. And, and he was the first to admit, like, He's like, my posture is not great. (laughs) Like you look at pictures or videos of me, like I'm, I'm kind of hunched over a lot of the time. Um, but he said, and you know, he's, I think pushing 60 at this point. Um, but he said, I think, I think the reason I've, I've gotten away with not really having any back issues is that I'm not, he said, I never hold any tension, like whatever position my body is in, even if it's not textbook, like I'm not clenched up, I'm not holding tension. I'm loose. I'm fluid. Um, yeah. And, uh, this was in the midst of me, like revamping my entire posture and physical approach. Mm. Uh, like I, I did a few lessons with Dave Elich. We interviewed him a couple times. Cool. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I was looking at Ash just like, God, how is he doing it? And then I was like, of course he's, he's relaxed. He's relaxed yeah. and loose all the time. That is kind of the key for everything is, um, eliminating tension. Yeah. 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 And it's a hard thing. God, it's, it's so hard to do that. The thing I've focused on, uh, most recently is breathing. Like (laughs) after I got sort of, you know, my body and my movement into a good shape, I realized like, oh, I'm still really not breathing very much (laughs) at all when I play. And the, the yoga practice, I would imagine, I mean, you know, the regularity and the depth of breathing is just like yoga 101. And mm-hmm. if you've instilled that uh, away from the drum set, this is one of the things that Dave Elitch sort of like talks about. He's like, the, you, you've got to instill certain habits away from the drum set just in daily life yeah. so that they become commonplace for your body so that when you sit at the drum set, you don't have to think about doing those things. It's just stuff you do all day, every day. Right. And breathing is one of those things. I'm still working on it. <laughs> it's a lot. There's a lot, there's a lot in there. And, but you know, the consciousness of it, I, that's, that's like one of the main things with the fundamental philosophy of yoga is like just being conscious of movement, being conscious of breath and, and being aware that these are things to pay attention to, you know, um, yeah. at yeah. least you have that. Right. Right. <laughs> at least, you know, um, you should be breathing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are there certain like trends or tendencies you're seeing in, in your students, um, whether it's physical or, or musical? Man, I cannot get these kids away from like the most ear piercing rim shots. Like, stop it. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's like, it's a trend that they're hearing in some modern drummers. And, um, a lot of these drummers, in my opinion, they play too loud. You go to ETA and they're playing like they're playing in an arena and like stop yep. that. Yep. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of students emulate that and these these effing rim shots. Oh my god, I just want to take the <laughs> snare drum away. Get out of here. Maybe you should. You should like duct tape all the rims on the snare drums. <laughs> no. <laughs> you have to pay a fine for every rim shot that hurts my ears. Right. Um that's a trend that I'm seeing that I'm, I'm hope like, I don't understand why people don't enjoy the space of dynamics, especially at a soft range. Like there's so much music that can be made soft. Um, yeah. I, I would like to see that become a trend. Damn it. 
<laughs> <laughs> I would love that as well, but I don't. I don't think it's yeah. going to happen. <laughs> Just arena rock jazz forever now with holes in front of our bass drums and. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh God, I got into this whole debate on Reddit about about you know the porthole in the kick drum and how, in my opinion. <laughs> You know, like the the average sound engineer at any gig should you know should know how to like mic a bass drum without a porthole in it. But so it's many, not that hard. Just, yeah, it's really not that Where's hard. Where's the hole? So Why don't you have a hole in your bass drum? <laughs> yeah. well, I, guess I paid I'll, for I guess the I'll... whole head. God damn it! <laughs> well, I guess I'll just gate the fuck out of it then. No, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Like, are there are there any um, are there any physical things you're having to f- fix in a lot of your students? Um, I mean, I definitely address it with all of them. They sit too close, and so their tailbones are scooped under. Mm, I think we yeah, talked yeah. about this last time. Scooting the, the throne back so that you have space for your hip flexors to tip back. We work a yep. lot on that, and then and then adjusting the center of gravity. You know, I mean, it's like your feet are doing these things, and half the battle is finding your center of gravity. So, um, actually addressing that and how to find that with the chair further back, so that you have space for your spine. Um, mm-hmm. We talk a lot about that. Um, getting symbols at the right height so that they're not slouching right like that. You know, that's the first thing I do yeah. when I see students is just raising the cymbals up so that it pulls them up or, or even raising the drums up. It's, it's different for every student, but I think center of gravity and correct heights so that they, they want to sit higher is, are the two kinds of things. Right. Right. Yeah. And that the center of gravity thing, it's like every, everybody finds it behind the kit, but I think most people find it in an unhealthy way. Like yeah. You said, Cause they're, they're too either- close and they're, yeah. Scooped. Right, they're like they're either rolled back on their tailbone or they're pitched forward so that their center of gravity is actually in their feet. Right, and then <laughs> um, they're basically just falling with every pedal motion. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Every every kick stroke is a fall forward. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. I, it, I I'm glad to hear that you're you're really addressing that because it, you know, I, I'm I'm a perfect example of of a drummer who um, waited too long to address it. Like, and Mm -hmm. I think it happens to most drummers, unless you're practicing yoga from an early age, like you were like, we, we find ways to do things that like that work. Like Dave Elich says, like you can rustle things out of yourself, but it's not coming out in, in a physically healthy way. So. Or a way you can do consistently. Yeah. Yes. You know, and Joe, Joe's posture. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it, but Joe has amazing posture. You know, La Barbara. He's got really. Yeah, I mean, all I all I think about when I think of him is like the old pictures from the seventies. And he's like a little he is, more. Yeah. <laughs> and he's sitting like a foot and a half off the ground. It's like you know the yeah, he pictures of Porcaro. <laughs> but I um, think when you see him now, I mean, like he'll lean in when he's like listening, but he also sits up. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's yeah. he's so healthy too. He like runs every day. Oh, that's right. We talked a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Great. Well, yeah. And I mean, I just, I, I encourage every drummer I, I talk to just like have some physical activity, whether it's yoga or jogging mm-hmm. or weight training or, or whatever, like it's just so beneficial and will add years to your playing life. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the older I get, the more grateful I am to have a good 
core strength, you know, and it's not just playing. It's like loading that shit in and out of your car and yeah, stacking it on the cart and moving the cart and, and maneuvering the cart through elevators and um, yeah. Yeah. All that a, stuff. It's physical. It's a, it's a full body sport, man. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that is, that is just uh, one aspect of your, your whole teaching career that um, I'm, I'm really glad to see. I, I think um, you're, instilling a lot of things in your college program that um that college programs either haven't had or just haven't really focused on um that are really important so it's 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 great to see i think you're you're where you're you're where you belong thank uh, you and they're lucky to have you and it was great to talk to you again yeah you too it's so good to see you i'm glad everything's going well for you and yeah you're still doing this these are these are great these are so fun awesome thanks so much yeah We'll talk to you again sometime. Cool. (laughs) In another eight years. (laughs) Right. There you go. Tina Raymond. Great to catch up with her. The new record, Divinations, will be out October 6th. Look for that wherever you get music. And she's got a ton of dates coming up over the next few months, mostly on the West Coast, but also here and there in the rest of the country. Go to tinaraymond.com for more info. Next week, Matt Krause will be talking with John Ginger Hamilton. He is a British drummer currently in the touring chair with Sam Smith and has recently relocated to Nashville. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, play pretty, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.